Welcome to Bible Study. This is Nick Rita, your host. Thank you for tuning in today. It's our pleasure to always welcome you to our program. And please stay with us because we have a Bible study to conclude the book of Genesis. We are going to look a little bit more into when Jacob arrived in Egypt. I would like to welcome our panel. Brenton, it's good to have you with us. Thank you, Nick. It's going to be a real joy to share this uh, study together. And Joe, thank you for joining. Thank you, Nick. It's uh, it's good to be with the panel. Ken, it's good to have you with us. Thank you, Nick. It's wonderful to be here again. I'm looking forward to the uh, this uh, story today of uh, just an everyday family and the wonderful things that they went through. Lija, it's good to have you joining. Yes, thank you. I feel very privileged. Len, thank you for joining this panel today. As always, thank you for the welcome, Nick, and hello, listeners. And Will, also it's good to have you with us. It's good to be part of the team. Thank you, Nick. We have a full panel today, but it's our privilege to welcome back after a while Dr. Marek Yantos. It's good to have you with us, uh, Marek, today. Thank you, Nick. Thank you for the invitation to join. I always appreciate the opportunity. Uh, it's also very good um, that you took some time, uh, Marek, to bring together a few thoughts uh, to conclude for the book of uh, Genesis in this Bible study. I would like to ask you to take us through. Wonderful. Well, today's uh, study is entitled Israel in Egypt. Now, admittedly, when we use the term Israel here, we are referring to the spiritual name given to Jacob. We're not looking at the nation of Israel as such, but we are looking at the individual Jacob, a wonderful patriarch, and we could say prophet, who uh, at, in, in the final stages of his life uh, moved to Egypt to be with his son Joseph. So welcome to the study of, uh, of the book of Genesis. It's the final study. This has been a, a very inspiring book to uh, study. And I'm sure that we have all been richly blessed by the different themes uh, that have come through from, from the study. And given that we have come to the end of this quarter's studies, I think a short overview of the book would be very appropriate. I'm sure that as we have looked at these lessons, they have had life impact. They have taught us many different things. They have uh, helped us to focus on the challenges of life, on the meaning of life, and what God expects of us. But before we come to a review of the lesson uh, for this week, I would like to invite Len to perhaps lead us in prayer, uh, inviting God to guide us in our discussion. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity of studying this wonderful book of Genesis wherein we find many of the explanations of why we're here, what we're doing, and also where we're going. May that you'll bless us as a panel today as we share with those who care to listen from your holy word. We invite your blessings on us and all who listen, and thank you for the opportunity of opening up your wonderful word in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm, amen. Amen. Thank you, Len. Uh, before we come to a review of, of this uh, week's study, I want to share with you something quite interesting that I came across just recently. I have in front of me a special issue of the National Geographic. It is just off the press. This issue commemorates the 
fifth anniversary of the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in the caves of Qumran in the Judean Desert. On a couple of occasions, I've had the opportunity of visiting the Dead Sea area and to actually visit the caves where some of these scrolls have been found. But what I'm finding very interesting, that the research on these Dead Sea Scrolls continues till this day. Not only are different museums around the world examining these copies, but many of these fragments uh, are touring around the world and are on display in various different places. Now, what's fascinating is that of the 100,000 fragments that have been found to date, and they are still looking for other fragments, uh, examining various other caves in the area. These fragments represent about 900 different manuscripts. And of all the manuscripts that are represented there, there are fragments from about 20 different copies of the book of Genesis. Now, that's that's kind of significant because I think that in many ways highlights uh, that this book was very, very popular during the pre-Christian era. The Dead Sea Scroll fragments make up a number of Old Testament books. I think all of the Old Testament books can be found in these fragments, with the exception of one, and that is the book of Esther. So, for example, there are 34 copies of the book of Psalms. Uh, there are 21 copies of the book of Isaiah, 30 copies of Deuteronomy. 16 copies of the book of, uh, of Exodus, and of course the 20 copies of the book of Genesis. Now, these are not necessarily complete scrolls, but these fragments come from 20 different sets of scrolls of the book of Genesis. Now, most of these scrolls were found around Qumran, and uh, these scrolls were left in the caves by committed, dedicated people students of the Old Testament who were fleeing the invading Roman armies, and they hid them in these caves to keep them safe. Now, 2,000 years later, we have these scrolls as evidence of the authenticity of the Old Testament, including of the book of Genesis. The National Geographic features a whole chapter on the significance of the book of Genesis, and if you do have a chance to obtain a copy of this special issue, I would recommend it because it certainly affirms the authenticity of the Old Testament and of the Bible. And in that chapter on the book of Genesis, it specifically refers to the book as one of the most prominent books in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, you might sort of wonder, well, what's the significance of all of that? Well, when we consider the fact that the book of Genesis was written some three and a half thousand years ago, there is another book that has been written much more recently than that, only about 160 years ago, that has come to be noted as the most influential academic book. And that book carries a somewhat of a similar title, On the Origins of Species by Means of Natural Selection or the Preservation of species in the struggle for life. Now, you know who the author of that book is, uh, none other than Charles Darwin himself. And of course, this book, published, written much, much more recently, challenges the accounts of the book of Genesis as we have been studying it and proposes a totally different alternative perspective and view 
of how life came into existence and the origins of our world. So I think it's wonderful to be able to look at this book, see all the archaeological evidence pointing to its authenticity and reliability and so forth. And I think it's by providence that these scrolls have been found in the case of Qumran. And so today, as we look at the book of Genesis for one more study, uh, we can have confidence in the reliability of that word. Now, panel members, before we come to the study of the last few chapters, and we will be looking at chapter 46, 47, 48, 49, and 50, I would like to do a little bit of a review and perhaps ask you to identify some of the important themes that we have looked at in the book of Genesis this past quarter. And uh, and perhaps we could uh, begin with one important point, and that is the title of the book itself. Now, we know that the book, the title uh, of the book Genesis, that that is its Greek title, but the Hebrew title, in actual fact, is Bershit. Now, that is important and significant because Bershit is the very, very first wording found in that book, and it means in the beginning. Those are the very words that the book opens with. So it's kind of interesting to note that. But panel members, what, what is the significance in terms of the beginnings or the origins as we see them in the book of Genesis? Len, you would like to comment on that. Yes, I want to say this first. I had someone say to me one time, I believe in Jesus Christ and what he said, but I don't believe in all that Old Testament stuff. Of course, Genesis is the first book of the Old Testament. So if you believe that the Old Testament, including Genesis and particularly Genesis, is only myths, legends or moralistic stories, then what can you believe? If Genesis is just a made-up story to provide some uh, morals for people to live by, You've missed out on so much. For example, Genesis introduces us to God to begin with. I want to say this also. Jesus believed in Genesis. Jesus taught from Genesis, quoted from Genesis. Genesis is really the foundation on which the rest of the Bible is built on. If you can't believe Genesis, you might as well throw your whole Bible away. Right, right. Thank you. Thank you. Any other comments, panel members? Yes, Ken? I think just following on from what Len said, if you don't believe in Genesis for whatever reason, looking at that from a practical point of view, that's like trying to put a building up without any foundation. You have to have something there to begin with. And Genesis is such a wonderful book because it tells us the origins of God, the origins of earth, but also the origins of sin which I think a lot of people aren't aware of today. So it really is a book worth looking into. Right. Yeah, it certainly gives us the uh, uh, the history of, of humanity, of civilizations, of social structures. And, of course, one of the social structures that is highlighted right at the very beginning of the book of Genesis is the social structure of family. And in some ways, you know what's fascinating, if you look at the book of Genesis, it's really the history of families of family conflicts, of family dysfunctions and problems and resolutions and so forth. So 
You begin with the very first family that God established on earth. And what do we finish up? We finish up with a big family, the family of Jacob. And uh, and families are of absolute significance. Before we even have the establishment of a nation, we have the history of families. And the most important family, the family of, of, of Jacob, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Yes, Nick? Yes, I was just going to say, uh, while you mentioned that, actually, that's a wonderful that you mentioned the importance of family. And I was just thinking that in the book of Genesis, God show us, you know, the institution of family and not only the earthly family, but uh, the institution of Sabbath, for example, which was a relation in between God and humankind. Right. It's another institution there. Right at the beginning, in the first chapter, you have these fundamental mm. Uh, mm. beliefs yes. which will hold for the rest of the Bible yes. and yes. Uh, will keep us into that connection with God. Yes, very true. And, and of course, uh, when, when one accepts the creation account, the Sabbath is a celebration of God's creation. Uh, the Sabbath represents the means by which God wanted to enter into communion with, with the human beings that he had created. So thank you. That's another important thing. What are some other important themes that we studied in the book of Genesis that come to your mind? Any others that you can think of? I think, Marek, we get the origins not only of the earth, but the origins of transgression and sin. Mm-hmm. We're introduced to a... Uh, deceptive power, which we recognize today as uh, Satan, and uh, his um, complete control over the human race and Adam and Eve, and of course the uh, fellowship that was lost with God. He had intended that we live forever in his fellowship, and of course we have noticed uh, since then, looking at our own lives today, the terrible results that sin and death and murder have brought upon society. I think that uh, Genesis gives us a perspective on this. Mm, it does. Len, you had a comment. Yes, a lot of thought, effort and um, promotion is given these days to stop the effects of global warming. And yet we read in Genesis that when God made mankind, he made him with a mandate to care for the environment. Mm. So what we're hearing a lot about these days in the news and and so on really stems right back to creation where God said that human beings are to be the custodians of this planet. Yes. Thank you, Len. That's a very important thought. I I, I think the environmental uh, management implications uh, arising from there are very important. Brendan and then then Joe. The key... uh statements in the whole of the book of Genesis, Mark, as I see it, is the issue of preservation. We have creation in chapter 1 and chapter 2. We have the fall of man in chapter 3. And we have God's plan to preserve the one through whom the seed would come that would crush the serpent's head. Now, even as recently as this week's study, which we're going to look at in a minute, God appears to Jacob and says, do not fear go right ahead. God was in control back at the start. When man sinned, it's not as though God had to resort to plan B. I believe that God already knew what he was going to do. But right at the end of the book of Genesis, Joseph says, I want my bones to be taken back to Canaan to rest with my ancestors. There's still that longing, even at the end of the book, for Canaan. And that's a metaphor, I believe, 
of the heavenly Canaan. Yes. So the whole, in the book of Revelation, the heavenly Canaan comes into being, chapter 20, 21, 22, we find that. So it's a good start and it introduces us to really the rest of the Bible, but introduces us through the way that God miraculously preserved a seed for himself all the way through history, despite dysfunctional families and despite whatever else is going on. Yes, yes. Joe, your comment, please. I think it's, uh, for me, as we have a look at, as we've studied the characters, the various characters portrayed in Genesis, we see how God is involved in the watch, care and blessing of his people. Mm. Um, we have examples of faithfulness and faithlessness and, of course, the consequences. I would say this is the law of consequences. In the modern age, we like to think that if it feels okay to me, that it is okay. But in Genesis, we have this law of consequences, and this helps to guide our decision-making. It might feel good or okay to me, but it can have an adverse impact on those around me. And the question is, am I my brother's or sister's keeper? This harks back right at the beginning. And once again, that's found in Genesis. Accountability, another big term that is big, it's big these days. So we have to have an overview of how God guides and watch, watches over his people, how he blesses them. Consequences of choices, either good or bad. And I think this feeds in and guides to our decision making today that, um, that we may make good choices, if you like, so that uh, we avoid adverse consequences from those choices. Thank you, Joe. It, it kind of un- underlines one thought, and that is we oftentimes think of the law being introduced in the book of Exodus, but but here we see that God has a moral law which was well-established and well-known to these individuals very early in the book of Genesis, and uh, and they were judged on the basis of, of how they related to that law, what was acceptable, what was unacceptable, and, and the consequences that were born arising from evil and, uh, and wrongdoing. Uh, Len, you had a comment. Yes, a couple of things. The book of Genesis, of course, has already been stated, explains the origin of original sin on planet Earth. It also talks about the person in uh, Jesus Christ who provides the forgiveness of sins and makes it possible for man to live eternally as was originally planned. So it seems very much to me that Christianity doesn't make a lot of sense if you remove the book of Genesis. Right. It seems like watching a, a, a movie on TV or something like that where you come in halfway through Genesis provides the background for the Mm. Saviour to come. Besides that, it also provides some examples of what Christ did for us about the plan of salvation through particularly the life of Joseph. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I could go on about this for a long time, but Joseph, in a way, is a type of Saviour. Right. Good. Uh, Brendan, you had a comment. Yeah, just very quickly, uh, Marek. I believe Genesis is a very interesting book about the subject of character development. Mm. And the outstanding example in the book that we'll be looking at today is the blessing pronounced by Jacob upon Judah, who was the progenitor of the line of Christ. Now, Judah's starting out, we would say, it was a bit murky. 
but uh, he over, obviously overcame those things. Hmm. The book of Genesis pr- brings out very clearly key people, some of whom overcame, I believe, by the grace of God, and some of whom failed. And if hmm. that's not a message for us today, I'm not sure what is. Sure. Now, the lesson, uh, as we look at it this week, focuses on two characters in particular. It focuses on uh, on Joseph and Jacob. Uh, as we know, uh, one quarter of the whole book of, uh, of Genesis is devoted to the life of Joseph. But here in these final chapters, we have the focus on Joseph and his reunion with Jacob, his father. It's a wonderful account, a moving, emotionally moving account. So I want us to come to focus on, on these last few chapters, uh, chapters 46 to 50, and uh, and look at the concluding uh, events in the lives of these two figures and see what it is that we can learn from them. When we look at Joseph, you know, it's an, it's an amazing story of rise from rags to riches. When you read Psalm 105 and you realize that this man was thrown into prison, cast into irons, and so forth, treated as a uh, as the worst criminal and offender, and yet he rises to be the prime minister of Egypt, and he's placed there by God for a very specific purpose. It's a wonderful transformation, but that transformation happens purely on account of God's leading, God's providence, God's God's guidance. Uh, so last week we left off with the account of Joseph's rise to power, of his self-disclosure to his brothers who betrayed him, who sold him into slavery. And here we see the story of Joseph's re- reunion now with one of his uh, uh, full-blood brothers, that is Benjamin, the profound confession of faith in God uh, that is voiced by Joseph. And uh, and so as we look at these, I, uh, I'm hoping that that we will not only share as to how these stories impacted us during our studies, but also what lessons we may learn from these encounters that provide some principles and guidelines for how to deal with life's conflicts, difficulties, and challenges. So coming to chapter 46, I was wondering, Brendan, would you highlight some of the main points that we find in chapter 46? Certainly, uh, Mark. Verse 2 is a particularly interesting one because Israel is on his way to meet with his dearly beloved son, who he thought was dead, but is discovered is alive, and he offers sacrifices in verse 1. Now, this is really interesting because both Isaac and his father Abraham offered sacrifices at Beersheba. Beersheba is the southernmost portion of the land of Canaan before you actually enter the area that um, you would originally describe as the beginning of Egypt. And I believe these sacrifices, Marek, were not actually sacrifices regarding salvation. I believe they were Thanksgiving sacrifices. He's just been told in the previous chapter that his son Joseph is still alive. And he says, I will go and see him before I die. I believe this sacrifice mentioned here is a sacrifice of Thanksgiving. And that's pretty important, I think, in our Christian lives. Mm -hmm. We're always asking God for things. But in actual fact, how often do we thank God for the blessings that he's actually given to us? How often do we actually offer a a thanksgiving of praise? Another interesting point, I'm the God. He says to him, Jacob, Jacob. Notice he doesn't call him Israel. He calls him Jacob. I think he's reminding him of um, the fact of where he came from and how he is now Israel 
but he's reminding him of the things that have gone on in the past. Remember the disclosure by Jacob's sons to him about the fact that Joseph is still alive must have really struck home with Jacob. He would have been thinking, surely, Marek, about the deceptions that he practised on his father and his brother in his early years, about the deceptions he practised on Laban and vice versa. All of those things, I think, would have bubbled to the surface during this this time. And God is saying to him, don't be afraid to go down to Egypt. Now, this is interesting because Abraham went down to Egypt and Isaac was told not to go down to to Egypt in chapter 26, Mm -hmm. verse 2. Mm-hmm. And uh, here he's being told it's okay, go down to Egypt. And again, um, this is a, a point that, as you know, comes right through the book. I will be with you. I will go down to Egypt with you. I will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Then we have basically the gene, not the genealogy, but we have a list of the family. The number 70 is very significant, I believe. But mm-hmm. I want to come down quickly, um, Marek, down to verse 20 out. Now, Jacob sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to get directions to Goshen. When they arrived in the region of Goshen, Joseph had his chariot made ready and went to Goshen to meet his father Israel. As soon as Joseph appeared before him, he threw his arms around his father and wept for a long time. Joseph did not appear before his father in common garb. I imagine he would have had the full regalia of prime minister of Egypt. He would have been wearing that and going in the royal chariot to meet his father. His father can't help as he flung out his arms to receive his son. Surely it would have dawned on him those dreams that happened all those years ago. Mm. (laughs) It would have come back to him, I would think, very, very strongly. And I don't think words, I mean, Moses has done a pretty good job, but I don't think words can really convey the depth of emotion. Absolutely. Have been between Joseph and his father. His beloved son is still alive. His beloved father, he's an old man. He's 130 years of age. And I can imagine wept a long time as a masterly understatement. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, mm-hmm. this, this, this story is such a great story. And then he tells his brothers, when you go and be for Pharaoh, tell them you're shepherds. Because yeah. I've done a bit of study on what the Egyptians thought of shepherds. And as you know, it wasn't a very high opinion. That's why they were given the land of Goshen. So it's it's very interesting, but Pharaoh does suggest in one place that maybe you guys could look after my flocks as yes. well. Yes. So summarising all of that, it's a joyful reunion and uh, we, we move on now yes. to Chapter 47. Yes. Wonderful. Len, you had a comment. Yes, I think Jacob must have had mixed feelings about leaving the land of Canaan yes. and going to Egypt. There would have been the joy of seeing his favourite son, who he thought was dead. But also he must have been wondering about the promises that God made to his grandfather, his father and himself, that they would um, have the land of Canaan in which to settle. And he probably wondered, well, is God going to let... uh, my family increase and that we will land in, we will settle in the land of Egypt. But no, in that promise, God says, I will make you a great nation while you are in. Right. So, went with the reassurance of God's promise. Right. 
Thank you. Okay. Just, just one point before we, we move on to chapter 47. What's, what's interesting when God speaks to Israel here in the vision at night, he says, I am God, the God of your fathers. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes we, we, we see even Joseph speaking to God, but always refer, referring to him as the God of my fathers. And the question that kind of comes to my mind is at what point does the God of your father become your personal God? Here, Jacob in his old age is still referring to the God of his fathers, but not to his own personal God until we come to chapter 48, where he refers to God as my shepherd, my life. You know, there's a transformation there, but in such late stages of his life that I've often wondered at what point does my father's and my mother's God become my own personal God. Brendan, you have a comment. I just wonder, Marek, whether it could be, and I'm only suggesting this as a possibility, it's so often in the Bible God reminds people, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. I wonder whether Jacob is referring to the, the God of his father's um, perhaps in the sense of he recognises, I mean, his memory would go back to what God had promised Abraham all the way back there in Genesis chapter 12. He would have been aware of all of that. And uh, I'm wondering whether he refers to the God of my fathers because the God of their, his fathers had thus far fulfilled what he said he would do. And maybe this is a sense of security in it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not suggesting that we should just refer to the God of uh, the Bible because it's security. We need that personal relationship yes. ourselves. But the basis, the foundation upon which our relationship with God is, surely is based on what we read in Scripture and what we see in yes. Scripture. Yes. But Nick? Yeah, I was just going to mention that when Jacob was uh, fleeing from home because of what he did to his brother Esau, he was mentioning, as you just pointed out, the God of his fathers, Abraham and Isaac. But I'll just briefly, I want to remind you that when he had the encounter with God himself, then he called God his God. And I think that's what matters for us. It's good to look back for experience of our forefathers, but we need to have a direct connection with God ourselves to be able to call God my God. Mm. Yes, and, and and it's interesting how how the family experience, how the witness of parents of families forms a building block upon which we come to that point where the God of our fathers becomes our own personal God. Joe, I'm wondering if you could possibly highlight some of the points of chapter 47 for us, please. Well, 47 is an interesting chapter because um, and some of the highlights are that Jacob finally meets Pharaoh. And um, as we've already mentioned, he's 130 years old and he blesses the Pharaoh. Now, this is not a matter of politeness. Um, he's actually addressing the leader of the superpower for that time. And in so doing, he's actually placing himself above Pharaoh in order to mm. be able to bless him. Now, Pharaoh, we know, is the richest and most powerful man in the world then. And Jacob knows this. So he ignores his own social or low social standing, uh, that is, as a poor shepherd. And or it's already been mentioned that Egyptians despised shepherds. And he blesses 
Pharaoh in the name of God. Now, Pharaoh himself acknowledged that Jacob was a man of God by accepting his blessing. Now, we have to remember that in the Egyptian religion, Pharaoh himself was thought to be a god. You know, mm-hmm. this is right. It's quite stellar. <laughs> they considered Pharaoh the human embodiment of Ra, the sun god. And it was remarkable that he allowed Israel to bestow a blessing on him. I believe that Pharaoh knew about Joseph's God. And um, remember that story of the interpretation of the dream where Joseph, give, Joseph gives the glory to God. And I believe that Joseph's life must have been a constant witness to his faith and God's glory. And he might be worth mentioning that he named his children Manasseh and Ephraim. He didn't name them some Egyptian sounding name. So here we have the meeting with Pharaoh. And then, of course, the chapter goes on to describe the absolutely desperate situation of the Egyptian people due to the length of the famine. First, all the money was gone. They'd given all the money, they'd eaten everything, and they were hungry again. And then the livestock and the horses were gone. They were exchanged for food. And then when they'd run out of everything, they offered themselves as slaves to Pharaoh in exchange for grain. The Bible says in verses 20, 21, so Joseph bought all up all the farms in Egypt for Pharaoh. Every Egyptian sold his land. The famine was that bad. That's how Pharaoh ended up owning all the land and Mm. all the people ended up slaves. Joseph reduced the people to slavery from one end of Egypt to the other, Mm. minus the the priests, not God's priests, but the priests of their deities. Mm. An interesting fact, though, is, however, where Joseph's family were living in Goshen, they remained protected. They were well provided for. They were free from slavery that affected the rest of Egypt, and they flourished and 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 did very well for themselves. So they had food, they had um, feed for their cattle and their and and also food that Joseph prepared and provided for them. Another interesting fact is that when all they had handed over to the to the Pharaoh, Joseph gave them grain, and then he instituted what we would consider a 20% tax. So he said, go sow this seed, and whatever increase you have, 20% of that belongs to Pharaoh, and the rest you can keep for food and seed for the following year. And so, and the Bible says that it was done from then on, it was that way. You know, there was a 20% tax. It sounds like a lot, but I think nowadays many would be happy with only a 20% tax, <laughs> all in Australia anyway. So, Must have been the first GST, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> so then it ends with Jacob making Joseph promise that when he dies, his bones will not be left in Egypt. It says, do not bury me in Egypt, but when I rest with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they are buried. Isn't that beautiful? He he would have known what Abraham was told by God, that they would have a time to spend in Egypt, and then he would lead them out with a mighty hand. And Mm -hmm. so I think he rests in that assurance. Yes, yes. Thank you, Joe. It would have been very easy for them to become all bound up with with the wealth of Egypt, and yet they were there only for a temporary period of time. They they were moving through, passing through Egypt. That was not to be their home. 
can, can yeah. I just add yeah. that interestingly, Goshen is on the is is fairly isolated. It's it's away from the people of Egypt, mm. as the Egyptians would have it, because yeah. they were despised. So they were also protected from um, paganism to it, you know, interaction with some of these yeah. people and the influences that they would have. So yeah. we remember that in Canaan, they were already starting into marriages. Judah had married a Canaanite wife. He'd given his sons to Canaanite women. There was a lot of mingling and a lot of exchanging of ideas and philosophies and religion. And so by the moving to Goshen, they were kind of kind of semi-isolated in that eastern portion, northern portion of Egypt that was well well nourished by the River Nile. But at the same time, they were allowed to be left alone. Mm. and allowed to keep as pure as they could to their faith in God. Yeah. Joe, the other point that you, you mentioned earlier about uh, Pharaoh, uh, about uh, Jacob blessing uh, Pharaoh, isn't it amazing that these men, as they served the supreme God, felt it completely appropriate to bless on behalf of that supreme God. They rose above the political system, above the religious system of that given area or that given time. And it it also kind of brings me back to chapter 45, where Joseph himself said that God had made me a father to Pharaoh. Mm -hmm. You know, um, he made me Lord of the entire household and ruler of all Egypt. But where does the credit go? It goes to God. God made me the ruler. He made me the father of Pharaoh. And, you know, to that same, in that same way, I feel that Jacob felt that he was completely appropriate on behalf of the supreme God, of his God, to bless Pharaoh. Mm. Uh, If you you don't... If you don't have a knowledge of God, you really essentially have nothing. Yes. So no amount of power, not an amount of land or money or prestige or celebrity status, whatever you think you've got, it is nothing without God. Yes, right. Brendan, you had a comment. Yeah, I'm I'm just reflecting on uh, what he actually says to Pharaoh I found uh, quite interesting, where he comes in before him and uh, he says to Pharaoh, says to him, how old are you? Now, that's an interesting comment. Yep. And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the years of my pilgrimage are 130. My years have been few and difficult, and they do not equal the years of the pilgrimage of my fathers. He's reflecting on the bitterness of his life. Yes. His life is now complete because we'll come to that, where he says, I'll go and see my son Joseph before I die. Um, but he's reflecting on the bitterness of his experience yes. and also reflecting on the fact that his longevity is not of the same magnitude of either Isaac or Abraham. Right. right. Good. Thank you. Now, Ligia, I'm wondering, would you highlight some of the points that we find in Chapter 48? Would you take us through that chapter, please? Yeah. Uh, it's the blessing of the two lads, <laughs> the blessing of Manasseh and Ephraim. Sure. Uh, later on, Jacob became ill, and Joseph was told that... Um, his father is ill, so he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, along with him. Jacob saw these two lads, and he asked, who are these? And he said, God has given me these two sons. And he said, bring them to me, so I may bless them. So he crossed his hands towards uh, the right hand being on the youngest son and he expressed a blessing 
may they be called by my name and the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and may they increase greatly upon the earth. Now, when Joseph saw this, he thought that his father mixed them up. And he said, no, 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 father, just, you know, uh, swap your hands. And um, Jacob said, no, my son, I know, I know what I am doing because his younger brother will be greater than he. So he put Ephraim ahead of Manasseh. We observe here that this happened before in Isaac time. So Jacob takes the blessings of his brother Esau. But we know that Jacob fulfilled God's prophecy in this way. He asked for these blessings to happen because he adopted in this way these two grandchildren born to Joseph in Egypt. And I would like also to mention in chapter 41, verse 50, when these two sons were born, his firstborn, he gave the name Manasseh, and it says, meaning that it is because God has made me forget all my troubles and all my father's household. And the second son he named Ephraim, and it was because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. So Jacob here fulfilled effectively God's prophecies in this blessing. Mm, yes, good. Thank you, Lydia. One one could uh, uh, for a moment think that maybe in his uh, old days there was a little bit of senility creeping in, but not so. Jacob had a very sharp mind with tremendous prophetic insight. He placed his hands accordingly on these two lads and uh, provided blessings which were to reflect exactly their role in the future tribes of Israel. As we know, Ephraim was oftentimes the name that was used to refer to the ten northern tribes. Uh, Judah was the name used to refer to the southern uh, nation of uh, of Israel. Uh, Brenton, you had a comment. Yeah, uh, and but- interestingly enough, one person who hasn't had a mention at all thus far is Joseph's wife, whose name was Asenath. Now, Asenath, I believe, was converted to Joseph's God because it would seem uh, unlikely to me that she would allow her sons to to be given, uh, shall we say, Hebrew names rather than Egyptian names. Mm, mm. There's a number of things going on here. Asenath came from her father was the priest of Om, Mm -hmm. uh, which means he was very high up in Egyptian society. I see that uh, Pharaoh is elevating Joseph who was a slave, let's be honest, that's what he was originally, he's elevating his social status by allowing him to marry the daughter of probably one of the chief um, priests of uh, the Egyptian empire. But the fact that these boys are named Manasseh and Ephraim suggests to me, without it actually being said in so many words, that she was at least amenable to them being given Hebrew names. I would suggest more than that. I would suggest that here's an example of in thee will all the nations of the earth be blessed. God's blessings are starting to go forth. Yes, yes. Thank you, Brendan. You know, a little bit along that point, and I I don't want to take too much time, is when when the members of Jacob's family are counted, it's 70 
excluding the yes. wives of his sons. Now, I, I think there is a reason why they were excluded that we don't have time to discuss now, but it's, it's kind of interesting to note that point. Now, coming to chapter 49, uh, Ken, this, this is the chapter where Jacob blesses his sons. Would you take us through some of the highlights of chapter 49, please? You see here where uh, Jacob is blessing the sons. I run through this quickly because there's 12 sons that he blesses. To Reuben, Jacob says, You are my firstborn, my might, and the first fruits of my strength. Unstable as water, you shall not have permanence because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. As a result, his blessing went to Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, what we just spoke of a moment ago. To Simeon and Levi, he said, your weapons of violence are their swords. Oh, my glory will not be joined to their company, for in their anger they killed men. Naphtal, he said, is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Naphtal's military skill was marked by deer-like speed and dexterity. Joseph. Joseph was his favorite. Joseph is a fruitful bar by its spring. His branches run over the wall. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. No other son received such a direct reference to our sovereign God, whom Joseph revered in all his ways. And lastly, Benjamin. Benjamin means son of the right hand. Jacob had these words, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, in the morning devouring the prey, at evening devouring the spoil. Benjamin's tribe was warlike, and they made a shameless defense of their evil in Gilbeth. Israel's first king, Saul, was one of the tribe of Benjamin, Mm -hmm. as was the Apostle Paul. So that's a really quick rundown of the blessings of the sons. Right. So so we have the longest (laughs) blessing there uh, pronounced on Joseph, but the second longest blessing is pronounced on Judah. Now, that comes as a little bit of a surprise, doesn't it? Uh, And yet... There is very, very significant meaning contained in the blessing that is pronounced on Judah. Uh, Ken, did you want to comment on that in any way? Because it's here that Judah, Judah um, Jacob says, Judah, your brothers will praise you. You are the lion, a cub of Judah. Uh, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. There's very, very special meaning and significance in the words that are expressed here, because in some translations, it refers to the Shiloh as coming through Judah, yeah. through the tribe of Judah. So that, that, that is quite significant there, because there we have a reference to the future Messiah. Ken, please. Yes, I think that's really, uh, a fascinating thing that as you look deeply into Judah, um, it, be, it, it really explains when you look into it that further up the track, um, as he is called the lion, Judah, later on we see that the lion, of course, also refers to Jesus and the tribe of Judah. And this lineage leading to Jesus goes through Judah, and uh, that's where he ended up. So he was a very important son and a very important person to remember. Right. Thank you. Brenton. Um, Shiloh is an interesting one, uh, <laughs> Marek. One of the meanings of Shiloh, uh, we believe it refers to the Messiah, but one of the meanings of it is rest giver. Please, yeah. Come unto me, all ye that labour, and I will give you rest. Mm. 
Thank you. Uh, it's wonderful. One of the points that would be great to discuss, but perhaps time doesn't allow us, uh, to what extent are the characters of these individuals tied to the predictions that Jacob makes of what will come of them in the future? Uh, it's an interesting one because obviously here uh, Jacob is speaking in terms of a prophetic vision of the future. He says, I am about to die, but God will be with you. Now, there, there is a certain link between what comes of these men in the future with the characters that they have developed right there as reflected in the accounts uh, in the book of, of, of Genesis. Liga, you've got a comment. I observed that the most blessing was entrusted on Joseph. Joseph is a fruitful vine near a spring and to Benjamin. But the less blessing was, and also to mention Judah, Judah was um, uh, is saying that your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. So Judah was the intercessor in, in this period of time when they were tested, like uh, going back and forth when it was asked to bring Benjamin, Judah was the one who uh, was the intercessor between Benjamin and Joseph. And he was saying, keep me in a prison, but just let Benjamin go. Mm-hmm. And also he was the intercessor uh, not to kill Joseph when Joseph was about uh, to be thrown in the, in the pit. But yep. Ju- uh, Judah was the one that wanted to save him. And mm-hmm. he suggested to be sold, but not to be killed. And because of that, uh, God expressed this blessing through the father, uh, Jacob. Yes. And the less, uh, the less blessing was Simeon and Levi, where it says that their swords are weapons of violence because they killed Shechem's family. Exactly. Yeah. Good. Thank you. Thank you, Liga, uh, for that. And now, Len, would you take us through the highlights of chapter 50, please? It's the final chapter of the book. And it uh, it brings to us the uh, the death of Jacob and, and and Joseph. All right. Well, chapter fifty of Genesis, the last chapter, is divided into three parts. Firstly, about when Jacob dies, and Joseph carries out the promise he made to his father about where he should be buried. Jacob wants to be buried where his grandfather was buried. That's Abraham, his father Isaac. This was in the uh, cave in the field of Machpelah. Joseph secured the approval of Pharaoh to go into a foreign country to bury Joseph's father, Jacob. And there this great retinue went there. He was buried. The next section is about Joseph's brothers who thought, okay, now our father Jacob has died. Joseph may turn on us. And so they sent a message. They didn't go in person to see if they could secure peace with Joseph. And Joseph was very upset about that. He thought, the brothers still don't trust me. And Mm -hmm. reassured them that um, they were safe. And then the last bit is about when Joseph died. And um, he was 110. In fact, he was younger than his father when he died. And they embalmed him and they put him in a coffin, but he too wanted to be buried in the land of Canaan. You can see how he identified 
not as an Egyptian, part of the family uh, of God's promise. Now, my question is, how did Jacob die and how did Joseph die? I believe both of these patriarchs died in the hope of receiving eternal life. There was, theirs wasn't a, a death of despair. It was a death of hope. And I have a question I want to ask everyone, panel and listeners. If it comes about when you have to die, how will you die? A death of hopelessness or a death of hope? Thank you. Thank you, Len. It's very clear uh, that uh, the riches of this world did not dominate their lives their hearts were and minds were focused on the promises of God and the promised land of Canaan. That is where they were heading. Life was just a journey. They were passing through these lands, but there was nothing as important to them as uh, as what God had promised as the ultimate reward. Now, in in looking at the life of, of Joseph in these last few chapters, in, in devoting a quarter of the book to an account of, of the life of Joseph, I think there is another significance there. And my, my study Bible actually has these beautiful parallels highlighting some of the typology and some of the uh, meaning when we look at the life of Joseph and the life of Jesus Christ. Will, I know you would like to develop that topic a little bit more. Would you share with us some observation and some comments uh, on that point, please? Yes, thank you, Marek. The story of Joseph prefigures that of Jesus because they parallel in many ways. I can mention only a few. Both are rejected by their own people. Both are sold for the price of a slave. Both are betrayed for silver. Both became faithful servants. Both are falsely accused and face false witnesses. Both attain stations at the right hand of respective thrones. Joseph at Pharaoh's throne and Christ at the throne of God. Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh and Jesus was about the same age, according to the Bible, when he began his ministry. You know, both of them become saviour to their people by going to Egypt. Joseph as a lad of 17 and Jesus as a refugee baby, according to Matthew 2. Both offered life-saving bread to all who come to them for help. Joseph's reign ends when he dies. Jesus' reign is fully confirmed when he died and he only lives and reigns forever. Merrick, I'd like to say, and to our listener as well, there is one scripture portion that lurks behind the whole thing. And it's in my mind and it draws me to seek spiritual survival through the bread of life, just as Abraham and Jacob did when they sought physical bread in times of famine. And it's this text in Amos 8, verse 11 and 12, and it has an appeal for us altogether. The days are coming, the prophet says, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine for the hearing of the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. And so I believe that the chapter ends with an appeal that we need to seek the Lord as 
as Leonard said, we need to seek the Lord while he may be found. Thank you so much, so much. There are so many beautiful themes in this book that I, there, there have been moments when I thought to myself, if we had no other book in the Bible but the book of Genesis, it provides us such a wonderful foundation for our faith. It provides us reassurance that no matter what circumstances life might impose on us, if we trust God, if our heart and mind is fixed on his promises, and most of all, on the promise of the heavenly Canaan, anything is possible by the grace of God, by the power of God. And that is so beautifully reflected in the lives of these uh, patriarchs that we have studied throughout this quarter. I praise God for the book of Genesis. I thank you, panel members, for the wonderful insights that you shared with us today. And uh, dear listeners, I, I hope you have been blessed by these studies And uh, we look forward to reconvening in the next uh, uh, week or so to continue our Bible studies on the new theme that has been set aside for us. But before we do go, uh, Brendan, could I ask you, would you kindly uh, conclude with a closing prayer? Yes, certainly. Father in heaven, I just want to say thank you for the book of Genesis. Thank you that your will and your ways are still being played out, even in chapter 50, right at the end of the book. Uh, we still see that God's plans are being implemented through the line of Jacob, through the line of Joseph, through the line of Judah. And today, Lord, these men all died not having received the promise, as Hebrew tells us. But, Lord, we're in a different situation, and I thank you that in 2022 we have John 14, 1 to 3, I've gone to prepare a place for you. And if I've gone to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. We too are strangers. We too, Lord, are pilgrims in this world, just as Jacob and Joseph were. But soon we will see Jesus face to face. My prayer for us as a panel and for anyone else, Lord, who is listening, is that we will be faithful and that one day soon we will be in the heavenly Canaan with Jesus We thank you for the promise. We believe it. We claim it, Lord. Help us to be ready, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you so much. May God bless. Yes, thank you, everyone, for your participation today. Marek, thank you for putting together this uh, study, wonderful study and typology between Joseph and Jesus. And uh, as the Bible puts it, every knee shall bow before me, says uh, about Jesus Christ, and that was the case with Joseph and his dreams, which he had with his family. I'm inviting you, my dear listener, to join us again, because we are going to learn a little bit more about our Lord Jesus Christ in the crucible with Christ. And the next study will be the shepherd's crucible. Until then, may God richly bless you and have a safe walk in the footsteps of Jesus.